Indigenous community. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to help create uh, diversity in thought without um, division in community, and where we also love to encourage you to remember how to think instead of tell you what you should think. We're here for the officially second part in our sexuality series, because we had a little intro last week, um, and uh, I'm here with Wags, as always. Wags, what's going on, my what's man? What's up? Dessert intake is high this uh, week, and good Lord. feeling good, so. <laughs> Dessert intake is high. <laughs> Um, and we're also here with a guest. It's so rare that we have a guest in uh, studio, so we're pretty stoked yeah. to be here with Preston Sprinkle. Preston, how you doing, man? It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. The smartest guest we've <laughs> had. Smartest guest. I don't know, <laughs> Oh, no, we, we did will have, see. We, we did see. have a nuclear <laughs> physicist. Yep. I don't so, know if he wins or... Sorry, he might win on that. I don't know if you get over the nuclear <laughs> physicist. Um, so, yeah, we are going to chat with Preston a little bit. He is here uh, in town to... Um, give a talk at Hill City uh, on faith and sexuality. Um, he is an author and um, also the, which is like the founder of the center. What, what's your yeah. official CEO king? Uh, what, what's the... Whatever, yeah, king. I like king actually. <laughs> yeah, the czar, the of, dark knight yeah. of uh, the center, uh, um, co-founder and president, I guess. Nice of the um, Center for Faith and Sexuality and. Um, yeah, Preston, we uh, are not going to get we're not going to make you like rehash all the stuff that you say all the time. So this is not going to be Preston Sprinkle 101. We want to yeah. tell people that right up front. But if they do want to kind of get like a center um, on the study of faith and sexuality, sort of 101, yeah. the website. But tell us where else people can kind of get a good basis for what you're about and, and sort sure. of what your goals are. Yeah, so the website centerforfaith.com is, I mean, tons and tons of blogs, free resources, paid resources. Um, my podcast, uh, Theology in the Raw, I would say I typically interview people once a week, and most of those guests, well, a good number, at least recently, are either LGBTQ or are involved in this conversation on some level. Um, or I'll, you know, sometimes my, my listeners will send in questions and I'll address them, and I would say, at least 30, maybe 50% of the questions are about sexuality. So, yeah, Theology in the Raw. My, I have a personal website, uh, PrestonSprinkle.com, and then uh, written several books on the topic, which you can see on those websites. What they are. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I know it's slightly it's, busy. It, yeah, you're busy. <laughs> well, it's been a few years. Yeah. <laughs> it's also cringy. It's always cringy to have to, like, pitch your stuff. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Um, cool. Well, before we get into it, so John and I have some questions. Okay. We have engaged, and we kind of said this on the last episode, we've been engaging with your work over the past couple of years, me um, more intensely over the last okay. like six, nine months, I guess. Okay. Um, watched the DVDs, read the books, um, uh, listened to a lot of the podcast, because that's obviously how we consume a lot of information nowadays, um, and uh, read some blog posts uh, on your website, mm-hmm. uh, blog exchange between you and Karen, uh, Karen Keen, oh, yeah. that was really great. We're going to have her on uh, next week. Um, but before we get into all that, I just wanted to ask you kind of to give us your, you know, your, your story, your, ele- your elevator story for how Preston Sprinkle ended up right. doing this. How did you, how did you end up it here? It started, uh, as an academic, um, pursuit. I was, I was, you know, several years ago, I just, yeah, well, let me back up before. The, so, so one thing I like to do is I like to figure stuff out on my own. I grew up with all these presuppositions about what the Bible is supposed to say about all these topics and. Early on in my Christian journey, I realized that a lot of the stuff that we grew up believing isn't actually in the Bible, or maybe it's more complicated than what we thought. So I've been going through several um, controversial ethical theological topics in my kind of writing journey. And so, you know, it wasn't too long when uh, sexuality would come up. So I started writing a book on what the Bible says about homosexuality. 
started as just an academic journey, just what does the Bible say, wrestling with all the passages and, and whatnot. But as I started to listen to and get to know LGBT people, um, it, it really wrecked me because most of the ones that I was talking to, whether they were Christian or not now, they were raised in the church and they had just horrible experiences in the church. I mean, just best case scenario, you know, they were kind of lonely and isolated, depressed, suicidal, and didn't have any, anybody to talk to and were scared to death to talk to anybody in the church because they would hear this comment, that joke, this sermon. And so they had to leave the church to find love and community. Like that's like best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Worst yeah. case is, I mean, we can, there's, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, tonight and tomorrow uh, yeah. during the, during the, the thing. Um, but yeah, some, some of the most horrific things I've ever heard in my entire life, some of those, some of the most traumatic experiences I've ever heard had to do with gay people being raised in the church, stuff that I can't even, yeah, just, would probably trigger a lot of people just mentioning right. what some of these things are. So I'm like, okay, let's just take the okay worst case scenario. Most Christians are going to agree, like, yes, we could, we shouldn't physically abuse you know, anybody. But even the the best case scenario, being lonely and isolated, scared to death, and didn't feel safe talking out loud about just something you're wrestling with. It's not like as a 13 year old kid, they're out and proud gay activists. They're just like, I want to be attracted to the opposite sex. I'm not. Can I? Can you help me figure this out? Does Jesus love love me? Because I heard the other day that God hates me because of this. I feel like I it might be better off for humanity if I just took my own life. Can, can I wrestle with somebody in the church and yeah. not feeling like they have a space to do that? You know that really hit my heart. I'm like, okay, we, we need to we need to change that. Um, so that's that's more of an elevator pitch and much more I can say. No, that's yeah, good yeah. though. That's really good. It was a tall building. It's okay. <laughs> um, cool. Well, uh, John, do you want to, is there anything, any other preamble before we get into just kind of chatting a little bit about now, this? You have your doctorate. Yes. In, uh, I have a PhD in, uh, technically, let's see, it's new Testament and early Judaism. Ancient Judaism is maybe what most people yeah. would be familiar with. So, yeah, I just bi- think that's cool. It's just a Bible degree. <laughs> it's just a Bible degree. Where can I get one? <laughs> just mail or yeah, get, one get one. Oh man, if I we were talking about when we had our friend, um, our friend on who's a nuclear physicist. I was my first question was, how do you not just walk into parties and be like, hello, <laughs> I'm a nuclear physicist. <laughs> if I had a PhD, oh man, I would oh, be insufferable. We need to figure out one we can get. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I think so. We're gonna ask you a few questions, kind of. That they'll flow in together, um, but I thought one good one to start off with that I don't think people think about very often mm-hmm. is how do you define sexuality? Hmm. So there's sex, uh, sexuality, um, th- those are often confused. Usually the word sex, the noun sex has to do with your biological sex. Sexuality is who you're uh, attracted to. Now, what does that mean, attracted to? This is where if you really want to get geeky, you know, you can really break it down to sexual attraction, um, romantic attraction, emotional attraction, physical attraction, and not all those are always lined up the same. Um, and this is where I think it's important to think of sexuality in terms of a spectrum, not airtight categories. It's not like... Um, you know where so with biological sex you have males and females and there is a small group of people that would be considered intersex which have a blend of both anatomy um but that's pretty much like either you are or you aren't okay sexuality it's like you, there's a whole range of a spectrum of sexual desires um i mean a whole i mean there's dozens and dozens of things that we would maybe call like a sexual orientation something that where you have an some some kind of 
desi- sexual desire. Again, that we may break that down into romantic, emotional, intimate, sexual, physical, non-physical, whatever. Um, and a lot of that is kind of more fluid than I think some people um, understand. So, yes. So we've been studying sexuality since, I mean, really the last 150 years more is kind of where there's been a lot of um, progress. And even now, now we're just discovering new things about sexuality. So it's... Yeah. In the long scheme of in the broad scheme of things, we're still just not. I wouldn't say at the beginning cusp of understanding it, but it's it's much more complicated than than I think yeah. people assume. Do you think as we're you know talking about how sexuality, like the study of it, is so for all intents like new, right? Yeah. Like, do you think in this discussion with theology and sexuality, is there I don't know, is there something that as we continue to discover new things. Yeah. Is there, is there anything that makes you wonder like, man, if something shifted here, mm. would that impact theology at all? Or, well, I don't, yeah, that's, that's that people raise that question. It's a good question, but I think we have to back up really, you know, even further and understand that like when you're dealing with sexuality, you're, you're dealing with, you know, the sciences and every scientist, any scientist worth their salt is going to say, I'm not an ethicist. I can tell you the is, but not the ought. Right. Yeah. And so I think we do have to be careful, um, assuming that some, there's something be something in the science that's going to therefore change the ought, like change ethics. I think it can give us a fuller perspective. It absolutely is crucial for understanding pastoral application relationships, the complexity of just the human experience. I think relationally and whatever is super significant, but it, just because we discover something, something about the is doesn't therefore necessarily mean that the ought flows sure. right, right from that. Yeah. You know? This is off script, but do you, um, <laughs> already, already this soon. <laughs> so it goes your brain. Yeah, I know. Right. I'm so sorry. Hopefully I won't say anything weird. Um, so does sexuality end in, in the bedroom or like in, you know, in the, in the theoretical bedroom, like, what so like my wife and I parent well together and that has something to do with our marriage you know marriage like sure. union together having made those kids together but does sexuality my here's here's Are the you crux taking of, us into your bedroom right <laughs> yes let me take you into my bedroom no you're gonna um so like something a like little wisdom that my parents always used to say was um when they would teach high school kids about sexuality at church right they would say sex begins um with the dishwasher in the kitchen yeah in the kitchen yeah you empty the dishwasher you do the little yeah. things that make somebody i always feel thought loved. that was like a kinky thing and then they explained <laughs> what they meant by it begins in the kitchen yeah no i was it hasn't happened yet um <laughs> but do, like how can you sort of explain how sexuality mm-hmm. plays into the rest of yeah a relationship like that i don't know so let me give a huge caveat. I am not an expert in like the science behind yeah. sexuality. I do a lot of reading and the more reading I do, the more complex I see it. But yes, I would say on the whole, I think sexuality is way more complex and holistic than simply, yeah, having some emotion, which ends up leading to having sex in the bedroom or in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's way more complicated than that. And I would say... Most married couples probably understand that fairly early on in the mm-hmm. marriage. Um, I know there's a stereotype of male-female sex drive, which is generally true. They're, they're generalities, but there's not, they're not absolutes. But I mean, even that, like, um, I think I think, and this would be something that can be verified in, in various scientific studies that the female sexuality is typically a little more 
um, complex and mm-hmm. intertwined. The, the the line between emotional, romantic, and sexual attraction as a, under the large umbrella of sexuality is is way more interwoven. Mm-hmm. Whereas with males, it's it's not as much. Um, and if you're you know an evolutionist would evolutionary biology biologist evolutionary biologist would say that there's there's you know that's right yeah there's reasons for that you right. know yeah. um, and I just I, I that's kind of where my knowledge ends I can't speak sure. in more directly to that but to answer your question there, there is something to that I think it's it, the way our parents kind of framed it was a little bit. I don't know. In my experience, it was a little more kind of patriarchal. It was kind of like, hey, guys, if you really want to get some, then make sure you do the dishes. But it still was kind of centered on like satisfying your sexual urges, you know. Um, so, I, But there is some truth to that, that, yes, sexuality is not just I'm attracted to you. I want to have sex. Boom, we have sex, whatever. I think it's way more intertwined with a complex human experience than that. Yeah, that's one thing I always want to make sure, especially as Christians, as we talk about marriage and stuff, that we don't miss out on, right? Because I think we all of us, me included, like we talk about sexuality, we tend to compartmentalize it into like who wants to do what with who, where, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and it's so much, I think it's so much more complex than that. So Mm -hmm. I, I, it sounds like you agree. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You mean the church hasn't talked about sex in a good way? That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, there's don't do it. Apparently my parents at church at some point told people to do it in the kitchen. Uh, I don't know. Um, I wasn't raising your parents. (laughs) It was a pretty cool church. Um, so another question I had, this is probably the closest to like a think on your feet, Preston, uh, <laughs> that, that we're going to have. Um, so we've been listening to your podcast, um, Theology in the Raw, which is great. And you had a fantastic episode with your friend Christian, who's intersex. Yes. So and a very specific um, Christian is a fantastic like example of um, a real life. Uh, yes. Well, what if? Because everybody wants to say, yeah. "Well, what if this or what if that?" It's yeah. you know, it's the same thing when we, we had... tell. And by the way, we tell everyone to listen to that episode. Really? Okay. Cool. I mean, that's I've got another too. one but... coming out with another intersex friend, maybe in a couple of weeks. Cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and I think that 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 idea of intersex is very important because it's like when we did the abortion episodes, um, everything comes down to like, yeah, but what if yeah. this? You know, and it's like being able to interface with Christian, I think, is fantastic. Um, but on that episode, he said something to the effect near they, sorry, they said something. Um, and Christian responded with he, she, they. Okay, yeah. Okay. I could Christian remember. is just like, I don't, I'm all, I'm whatever. So Christian asked something to the effect of why does you having the definitive answer for this matter? Mm. Um, and I think my read on the podcast was that it, it did give you pause. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything? It depends on what you mean by this. Here, here comes my. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but a lot of times people, the, the, well, one of the most popular questions I ever get in this conversation is, "What about intersex?" Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "What do you? Can you unpack that? Which intersex condition are you talking about? What specific question do you want me to answer?" Like that's just such a big overarching thing. And I think when Christian said, that, I don't even remember the context, but that is. Why does it matter to get this right? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what exactly is the this? Because there are certain things in life we would say, man, it's really significant that we get this right. We need to get, you know, that all humans are created in God's image, regardless of ethnicity or gender. Yeah, I think we should. I don't think that's like, well, we're going to land on different sides on that. It doesn't really matter. No, like that matters. Like there are certain things that really do matter. And I think there are other certain things that maybe don't matter as much. Or there's less biblical clarity on it, or maybe there's biblical diversity that we can say, man, the obviously God didn't really reveal to us the clarity that we would like. So I think, again, I'm a big spectrum guy. I think there's a, there is a spectrum of different things that 
that range from, yes, I really think there's a lot of biblical clarity here. There's a lot of consensus in historical global Christianity. And there's other things that are, man, it's just really, really much more ambiguous. So anyway, do, do you remember what the this was? Like was, determining whether Christian is male or female I mean, or something? I remember or, um, thinking I should re-listen to the episode and write it down specifically. Well, I, yeah. if I can remember, I, I think you when you guys were talking and Christian said something to the effect of... I, like I just don't understand why everyone has to have a definitive answer on everything. Oh, you know, it was more of a general kind yeah, of yeah. And in his, it seemed like his point was, it's okay if you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I guess but, what I read from it was like, why is it important for you? And I'll say he was talking to you, or we're talking to you, but yeah. for any of us, especially as like not gay people. Right. So the three of us are not gay. Right. Um, why is it important for us to have a definitive answer on someone else's sexuality? Right. Um, well, I think, yeah, I, even that would be really broader than I wanted to go. I, th- I do think that if we take the broad category of sexuality, just super broad, there's some things within that conversation. I think there's more biblical clarity on and some things where there's less biblical mm-hmm. clarity. Um, and other things like, yeah. So, but I would say that um, in as much as Scripture does carry, and I'll just let, let me just be really, really cautious here, or really open ended here, is in as much as Scripture carries some ethical clarity and authority for us today. Um, man, the Scriptures it does talk a lot about sex, sexual ethics, and it treats sexual immorality like when we go against God's standard pretty, pretty severely. Like Jesus and the apostles and everything. Um, the Old Testament clearly, you know, and, and there's some ambiguity and tensions throughout Scripture, but um, se- pursuing sexual integrity, I'm not going to use the term purity for various reasons, but <laughs> pursuing sexual integrity or aligning yourself with the Creator's intention for sexual expression, there's a good academic way of putting it, I think is treated throughout Scripture with... Um, so not severity, but what word am I looking for? With seriousness or like, man, this is when people, when Yahweh or Jesus's followers violate that, they're, it's, it's, it's a pretty significant thing that seems to happen. Um, and I do, and from my vantage point, and again, we can agree to disagree on some of these things, but I think that there is some good deal of clarity on certain aspects of what is God's intention for sexual expression. Um and so, yeah, because of the, because I see Scripture treating this pretty seriously, and because I believe that there is a good deal of clarity on certain aspects, then I'm going to say, well, yeah, then I, I think we should um, mimic that kind of rhythm of Christianity in, mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah. Do you yeah. think with that, in talking about the Bible and different interpretations sure. or perspectives on it, and uh, one of the things I was talking with Matt about, when we talk through even sexual orientation, yeah, you know, uh, you have... Um, Butterfield, who says it doesn't exist, or maybe she, I don't know if she would say she said, and I, or gay people don't exist, which is something nobody should ever ever right. say. But in context, I understand what she's trying to say in context, but you just still don't ever say that. For yeah, <laughs> yes, sure. She, she thinks sexual orientation is a we're we're, we're viewing. Sorry, cut cut you off, but no, so, you're good. You're good. Um, she she says that in in like modern day times, we kind of see sexual orientation as much more ontologically significant, kind of like you have males and females, straight people, gay people, you know, black people, white people, whatever, right. that is more fundamental to humanity where sexuality is, is way 
fluid and flexible or whatever. Um, so I actually agree more and more. I'm agreeing with the point she's making. I do think it's a, a good point to consider. I'll say that. Um, I just think the manner in which she goes about saying it sometimes can be sure. a, a very big turnoff and, and confusing. Yeah. Yeah. So you have something like that, and then you've got um, Wesley Hill who yeah. talks about orientation as a result of sin. Sure. You know that everyone, fall, yeah. everyone's sexuality is broken, and kind of that's a starting point. Right. Do you, is there any part of reading through Scripture where is it possible that Paul spoke from a socio historical? Mm-hmm point of view and had no right. idea as oriented you know that kind yeah. of thought process yeah so with um i i don't i do think that going back to the is and the ought i think we can draw two hasty ethical conclusions based on the shifting sand of contemporary perspectives on sexual orientation mm-hmm. um i mean in that just in the last 20 years scholars Let's just say secular scholars who don't don't even care about this discussion we're having on an ethical level would say, yeah, our perspectives on sexuality have really, I mean, they keep shifting and there's new studies on even things like the big thing now in, in, in a lot of um, contemporary uh, scholars in the last 10 years especially is is, is this idea of sexual fluidity. Um, at first, you know, like 15 years ago, we, we believed that, you know, females had a real fluid sexuality and they, they can you know, through various experiences, shift and change, um, not change from like fully on the one end of the spectrum to the other, but there is right, some, yeah. a lot more flexibility. This was from, if anybody's interested, the study by uh, Lisa Diamond has been kind of a pioneer in this. Who's She's a lesbian and not, not a religious person at all. But then more recently, even they're seeing male sexuality being a lot more fluid and, and, and flexible and just, and just complex. It's like, well, yeah, of course. Um, so all that to say, do we understand more about sexual orientation than Paul did? Yes. Do we really have a good grasp on sexual orientation? Eh, call me in 50 years. Um, what, were there parallel categories available to Paul? Yes. What we know, what, all the stuff we now know about sexual orientation, sure, we understand way more than Paul did. Um, but the idea that somebody can be born with an innate desire to be sexually attracted to the same sex, that's well documented in the literature around Paul's mm-hmm. day. We don't see Paul reference that, but we can't say that Paul just didn't have any kind of concept of what we now call sexual orientation. Therefore, uh, his words on sexuality are so outdated, we can't even really follow it. I think that's just historically yeah. kind of wrong. And even then, what if somebody, if somebody came to Paul and says, yeah, but Paul, what if, we, we know the standard of sexual morality, sexual immorality, but what if somebody had an internal desire to do something that's sexually immoral. I mean, I think Paul and Jesus would shrug their shoulders and say, what does that have to do with, yeah. you know, like I don't, we all have, like just because it springs from a place within, I don't know anybody who consistently would say if somebody has an internal sexual desire that's there as long as they can remember from, from birth, then therefore they should act on it. Again, there's dozens, if not maybe hundreds of the different internal sexual orientations that people have. And I, I don't like making analogies. That's why I'll never, you can fill in the blanks of which ones I'm, I'm talking about. But that's just because a desire is internal isn't the only inborn, innate, internal, doesn't therefore mean it's therefore okay to act on that desire. Right. Um, so then how would you tie that into like 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul talks about burning with desire? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so how does that, with what you just said, mm-hmm. which, um, how do you, kind of bring that in because some yeah. people use that as a way yeah. of saying, well, if you're burning with desire, 
just go get married, which is like so silly when then I can't anyway, but like when they, yeah. you know, like if you just, you can't handle not having sex and just get married. I'm like, that's a horrible reason to get married. I know. But how do you tie that in with him talking about that? Yeah. That, that one's a tough one for me. The whole passage is tough because just, just later on in that passage, he says, it's not wrong to get married, but it's better to remain single. And then I don't know that the whole, I, I would hesitate that's the only verse in the entire Bible we know that kind of says if you're really feeling like you can't contain yourself, then get married. You know, like marriage is never talked. Marriage and sexual desire is hardly even connected in the Bible. So I don't, I don't want to write off the verse because yeah. it's whatever. But like this, this is a bit of a. It's kind of like building a theology of baptism based on the thief on the cross. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's okay. But, Confess Jesus, repent, be baptized. You know, it's kind of part of the salvation package, the salvation experience. Um, but what about the thief on the It's kind of like we are talking earlier about, well, there's this exception, you know. It's like, well, we don't, we need to figure out how that exception fits in. But I don't want to build a whole theology on that exception. So, yeah, I don't want to have a marriage theology of, man, if you're really burning for passion or lust for this person, then boom, go get married to them. But we got to deal with the verse. Now, I, I think it would be, some people, I think, have used that passage to say, therefore... Um, we should allow for same-sex marriage in, in the church because this person's burning for passion. They can't they can't handle signalness or whatever. Even if we took that Paul at face value, he wouldn't say, "Okay, satisfy your desires in a sexual relationship that Paul himself would have seen as immoral." Right? Uh, any first-century Jew uh, would have. Um, I mean, he's holding out singleness or marriage, which Paul would have defined as two people of different sexes. Um, he doesn't have a category of, oh, if you can't handle it as a single person, then satisfy your desires in, in what he would deem an immoral relationship. Sure. So um, so I think it's a bit, it's a categorical mistake to kind of use that verse to say, therefore, same sex, same sex marriage, L- let alone the whole thing of, man, I got to, we need to be really cautious about telling people to get married because they're just bubbling over with passion for this person, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I would never do that with a straight person if they came to me and I, said, exactly, yeah. hey, <laughs> I love having sex <laughs> and I really want to like my next thought is not going to be, you know, you should get married. Well, that w- I mean, that would, this is going to seem dumb. Why not? <laughs> well, because I think it's a, a horrible way to enter into marriage is for selfish desires. Okay. Like, like you, I don't see the point of something that you're saying you're burning with that going, then going into marriage because you're burning with something that, um, you don't seem to think you can control or there's another option. Like you're going to go into marriage then just trying to fulfill your selfish desires. And I think anecdotally, when you think about marriage, to go in there with selfish desires is just a horrible way to love somebody else. And then the end results of going into thinking you're going to be selfish in your actions to do something because it you feel like it might cure something in you the end result is you're going to then look for something else to be selfish about. I, I just, I can't fathom a scenario where that makes sense to suggest to someone it's better that you get married. I don't like what woman, or if it's a guy or what man, if it's a girl would, would be like, you know what? This is great. Like you can't control yourself. So let's make a lifelong covenant to each other. It, even like language doesn't fit to me. It doesn't fit to say, a selfish desire and then covenant marriage. It's too 
totally different. And I get we're all selfish in marriage, but I'm just saying as the intent of it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So it seems this is where I get hung up. Um, We, so just like we wouldn't tell a straight person, don't get married because of your desire, because that's selfish. And because the desire will fade. Like, it's funny, sex right. is this weird, we're all three married, right? We've all, <laughs> yeah. Sex is this weird thing that's such an important part of your marriage, but such a small part of your, yeah. at the end of the Absolutely. day, it is Absolutely. the dishes and the kids, if you choose to have kids, or the, the things that you do together, or the trips mm-hmm. that you go on, and all this other stuff. Um, and that's where I, I feel like this idea of um, hinging a union of two people on that, or not allowing two people to, to do that, is such a hang up for me because <laughs> it's like the desire fades like two men or two women who want to spend their lives together like their desire their burning for desire with one another is such a small ultimately mm-hmm. such a small part of what the covenant of a Christ centered and I'm talking about sure. like a Christ centered yeah. yeah. lifelong union that could involve yeah. kids or ministries or biz- small you know starting a business together or or owning a home together or yeah. Managing, I was just thinking about like, I was helping my wife manage a, a an insurance bill the other day. We we're just arguing with it with the emergency room uh, lady, and I was just like, "This is what marriage is like. It's me having the right to call and say no, but I'm her husband, and I want to argue with you about this bill." And it, that's uh, where I get hung up on on the traditional, you know, the traditionalist view of marriage because when I hear marriage i just think like sex is this and then like the rest of marriage you right. know yeah um so that was why i asked like why wouldn't you you know and i uh, agree with you of course i agree with you on that yeah part, yeah, yeah totally you know? totally i mean shoot probably the last 20 years i mean if we live to a certain point the last 20 30 years of your marriage it ain't happening yeah <laughs> i mean so i mean like if it, if it I is mean, so god bless i mean yeah but like there's so i mean there's just way more to marriage so i agree with you there i'm just I'm saying as a premise to do something, it doesn't make sense. Right. So you're both agreeing on some like, I don't know what Paul means here, but this this doesn't seem like this is a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, this Paul's passage. This Paul guy. Real problem. (laughs) I mean, he's got several that I'm like, did you really say that, Paul? Real grouch. Um, Well, it's funny. So with your, I I mentioned earlier, your exchange with Karen Keene, your blog post exchange, I came out with a lot of thoughts, but Mm -hmm. one of the primary thoughts was like, man, Karen and Preston are both, like filling in the blanks with Paul a lot. Like, Hmm. and I think we all do like, that's the problem with that verse, right? Like we assume that he did know about same sex, you know, um, not covenant, but, uh, non predatory same sex relationships, or we assume that he didn't know, or we assume that he meant this, or he is like, we all do. Like, it's just a weird verse. (laughs) Like we are really working in the margins when it comes to, I think less so when you start talking about, um, Levitical law or, or even like, uh, terrible with scripture matthew when jesus says 19 yeah so matthew 19 when jesus references genesis or genesis like there's less margin working there i think um but the paul bat like the stuff with paul a lot of margins going like a lot of like we're talking in the what we think paul knows or do you disagree a kind of yeah no (laughs) well my agreement is that yes that's true but that's true of any interpretation you know any kind of historical grammatical literary you're understanding the historical context is by definition, you're trying to fill in some gaps and, and round out some sayings and um, just reading, you know, 
just reading the New Testament of the Bible from our 20th century perspective, there's all kinds of just cultural barriers that we're trying to uh, get over. I think, um, and K- Karen's going to probably disagree with this. So shout out to Karen. <laughs> and, you know, you could cor- correct me and, and you'll have the last word. But I think there is much more. So if let's just talk about the the prohibition passages, you know, the big five passages that say don't have gay sex. There's nothing in those texts, in the actual text to say this is outlawing slaves raping their masters or older men and younger boy. Mm-hmm. Like it's just there's no specific kind or subtype of relationship being mentioned so it's really been the affirming interpretation that's gone and done all the historical background and then said well what paul really means is older men shouldn't have sex with younger boys or slaves shouldn't rape their slave masters shouldn't rape their slaves even though paul never said he's just male male female female leviticus says the same thing corinthians so so yeah i I would say that of course I'm going to say this, right? But I'll yeah. just say it. Right. <laughs> this, is, this is my... This is what you're here for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is, yes, I think that the affirming view has to go to those passages and, and kind of fill in a lot of what they think Paul is actually saying, even though he never said older man, younger boy. Now, so I think that traditionalists have gone... Well, and I don't want to get too much into all the background of my whole journey or whatever, but I went into the historical study kind of eager to see that like I was like hey maybe they're right awesome then we'll all be affirming and you know um but when I went and I just saw that they were reading the historical they were reading certain strands of the historical background that kind of suited that interpretation and weren't really considering the other passages you know um so so the because yeah some people are gonna say well you're just going to the historical background and make I'm like no no I'm just responding to kind of people other people who have are doing that <laughs> and then to show yeah, that I think they're not listening to all the historical voices to fill in their the gaps or whatever do you when you so with something like that when they talk about folks might talk about like exceptions you know or allowances for things in scripture whether it was divorce or um for certain scenarios or you know matt and i have talked about how like a confusing scenario could be what if two folks who are gay want to have a covenant together and they decide we're not going to have sex. Yeah. Like, is that an allowance or is that an, you know, acceptable or, um, or what constitutes sex, whatever. Like there, you know, <laughs> there, there's, there's those questions too. Um, and, and even the question that sometimes, and I don't know that I have like a healthy answer to this, honestly, is if someone were to say, yeah, but sin hurts people, mm-hmm. right. And hurts ourselves and hurts people, takes us away from Christ. But what if you have someone who's gay, passionately mm-hmm. loves Jesus? Um, they had the same sexual ethic, yeah, as any like as you or I would, right. you know, as straight people. Um, why is it still right? Why is that bad? Like they're making a covenant, they're they're sticking to the sexual ethic, you know, except for you yeah, know. Sure. But um, what? Would, how do you respond to that? Which one? You give me a bunch of. Questions. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> They're all, so really, right. they're all really good. My brain just started going. So that last one? You were so, supposed to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would respond yes. <laughs> so, all right. The last one is a really good one. Do you want me to start there? The, start there, yeah. and then we'll go to okay. that. And so I rambled there for a second. I would, so I would, in a sense, um, challenge the premise that sin is kind of defined as what hurts another person. I think that's a uh, just, I mean, this is just an observation. It is a very Western, secular way of doing ethics. That's just... I don't know if you know the work of Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan yeah, Haidt. yeah. Yeah. So he was, you know, he he's the one that points us out in his book, The Righteous Mind, so well. And it was him who, it was when he was in elite Ivy League kind of circles. And then he traveled to India 
and realize, oh my gosh, like they have a different kind of way of doing ethics. And then he, he kind of learned that there's like six or seven different kind of, from an evolutionary perspective, six or seven different ethical impulses. One of them is harm, care. Okay. Um, if you harm somebody, that that's a violation. Now, his whole point as a liberal, he was like, liberals, progressive people, and really just a lot of Westerners just camp out on this one kind of ethical principle when he's like, look, and he, 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 he didn't quite say this, but I mean, he, you know, you, you have Eastern traditions, you have religious traditions that have a much more complex thing of what constitutes right or wrong. They, yes, harm is one of them. That's not certainly mm-hmm. not the only thing. And, you know, I use an example of two, if two people got married, they fall in love, then five years in, they have no kids and then they fall out of love. What if they're just fighting like cats and dogs? What if just like, this is this, what if they're hindering their own spiritual walk because of this? Like, I could think of, man, if you stay in the marriage, you're going to harm each other, you know, or harm everybody, you know, you should get out of the marriage. But I don't have any scriptural justification to say if you right. just yeah. fell out of love, you should get divorced. Like there's other principles at work. Are there deeper things about, you know, marriage representing God's covenant with humanity or whatever? Um, so I think that all that to say, I don't, the the harm question, these people aren't doing anything harmful. Therefore, that's one ethical question we should ask, but certainly not, not the only one. Um, the most fundamental question in this entire conversation that I rarely see anybody on both sides address. Karen does sort of, I, I, I push back on her a little bit, but um, it's just the whole idea. What, what is, when you say the word marriage, what is that? Like, what do we mean by marriage? Mm. You know, for most societies throughout history, marriage, sex difference has been built into the very meaning of marriage. More recently in the secular West, sex differences are irrelevant just two consensual humans and those are two valid options let's throw those on the table but um, of what marriage is figure that out and then we can move on from there but most people just assume the the recent secular western definition that marriage is a union between two consensual humans who aren't hurting anybody and i'm like that that is one definition um, but you need to defend that not just assume it um, and that's where i see again from the left and the right in this conversation they just assume a certain meaning of marriage and then they go to Leviticus or something. And I think that's just kind of a wrong way to go about the conversation. So, yeah. That's um, yeah, that's good. Um, I think that the, from, from engaging with you and Karen's work, it seems like the real, cr- I think you're right. That is the crux. Like, yeah. can we define marriage? But then even if you pull back from that, the whole crux of this seems to be what the Bible says versus what it means. Oh yes. yes. Like it seems like the Pandora's yeah. box of this is that, Although um, some of us may feel on different sides of an issue, whether you call yourself side A or side B or affirming or Mm non-affirming or traditionalist or whatever, we're all sort of like children of this opening of Pandora's box that Mm -hmm. says we're not fundamentalists anymore. Like we now are saying it's not about what the Bible, it's not just about what the Bible says. It's what the Bible means. Like once we enter into a deliberative process, it's tough, you know, it's like, it's tough. So it's... um, so that was that was know, Karen's yes yeah, yeah. that was a I think that really was her thing hel- that that and by the way I mean if, there's so much she did in that book well to push the discussion forward I've I've met few people that really understands what the actual questions are better than Karen it's yeah. it's a it was really good it's a really and I just loved her posture especially the first half of the book it was like usually you can see people kind of seeding like you can just tell where they're at by the first few pages a couple of chapters like all right, I know. You're already like set on where you're going to go. You know, when I read like Matthew Vines and I think it was Matthew's a brilliant guy and extremely well read, but it was just, it, it just felt, 
kind of like what a lot of people accuse conservatives of doing, you know, of like, oh, you already set out with your position and you're reading everything through that lens where Karen really felt like, wow, she's really honestly considering both sides, you know, and she was right. You know, she was a traditionalist for so many years, so she understands it. But anyway, all that to say, I, I her idea of the deliberative process, I think, was really helpful. Yeah. Um, so something I'm super curious about. This has probably been the thing that I've been most excited to, to <laughs> ask you. Um so you had Kat on, um, yeah. who's your friend, who is uh, transgender. Yeah. And and you have my understanding is that you've sort of made built relationships with transgender folks mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, so Richard Rohr talks about who has kind of recently, I feel like, come back into into popularity with hmm. the Enneagram. Everybody loves him right now. Thanks, Enneagram. Yeah. Loves Richard. Is it because like, of the Enneagram? Is that I what think so. I think so. Yeah. Shane Shane pushes Shane Claiborne pushes him okay. pretty, pretty oh, really? dang hard. Okay. Everybody. Look, Friar is the new black. <laughs> like, <laughs> being being a monk, monk it's is true. the new yeah, is the yeah, new so, rock and roll. So hot right now. <laughs> yeah, so hot right so now. Hot right Maybe now. it'll um, help us understand singleness better then. Like, true. Honestly, yeah, we need no, someone like you. Uh, well, it's funny because if you, I was telling John earlier, like if you Google um, Richard Rohr's sexuality, he's been talking about this stuff since the late nineties. Really? Wow. Yeah. So he talks about. Um, he recently did a, a meditation series on gender and sexuality, and he talks about the sort of, you know, he is going to be very ultra spiritual about everything, right? Yeah. Um, because everything comes to him through meditation and stuff. Um, but one of the things he talks about is sort of like femininity and masculinity as going beyond our physical self. Oh, yeah. Um, and so for someone like Kat, who um, my understanding was seems to be, and again, masculine and feminine can be tricky, you know, mm-hmm. um, we read... Leonard Sachs. It was Leonard, Leonard Sachs. Sachs. Yeah, yeah, we read why why gender matters, gender, yep. which I went into with a terrible attitude and came out of it. I just kept telling really just give it a chance, just Matt. Chance. Just I, don't like, I kept just being like, I don't like this guy. I just don't like him. <laughs> um, you, what do you? Were you? I ended up really liking it. It, yeah. it gave me a lot of perspective on the importance of gender. Yeah. I mean, which is what the book's about, right? But like on the importance, but also the like many leveled. Um, view his yeah. many leveled view of what yeah. gender really is and he's for, way more nuanced i see critiques yeah. of him i'm like i read his stuff i did not get that at so all, you know? um i think i can't remember what movie it's from but there's this line that christopher walken says where he's like it's the wrong tone you gave me the wrong okay. tone he has a bad tone <laughs> his tone the sax's tone is weird or, yeah it's just like there's little just like you were saying with yeah. vines like you see little seeds yeah i don't think sax my reading of sax wasn't that he was seeding for a conclusion, okay. but there was just little like when he the way that he talked about um, certain like transgender issues yeah. seemed a little conspiratorial. Like his tone sometimes came across to me as like it was abrupt. It was I, abrupt. Yeah. I think every like, once think, in a while yeah. he would bring up things in such a way that were like, and now they're gonna come and like make us all let our kids transition at six years old. Like okay. he's just. Again, it's tone. Yeah. I'm not okay. talking about the data he presented. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I really did end up liking that book. And um, for me, and I shared with you before we recorded, coming from a super, super ultra left background and my wife and I having this very like, we're going to have our son play with Barbie dolls and we're going to have our, <laughs> our you know girls signed up for Kung Fu and like da, 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 da. And we did that. And yet, less so with our boy, but certainly our girl is just like, a girl like she just (laughs) doesn't matter we gave her the choice and she chose she chose pink everything and sparkles and unicorns um so it was good for me but um thinking about sort of some of Ruhr's writing on masculinity and femininity as like spiritual states Mm -hmm. and then thinking about someone like Kat 
Mm-hmm. How do you rec- how do you reckon that like um, sexually different like a union between sexually different persons, mm-hmm. which is part of your definition of marriage? How is Cat being married to? I, I know you were uh, talking with her about like, is Butch okay to say? I don't know if that's okay, which I appreciated your sensitivity yeah. with that. But like, I'll also say, I don't know if lipstick is okay to say, like a lipstick. I don't think it's a nice thing to say. But how is Kat being married to a primarily yeah. feminine charactered woman, not sexually different persons? Right. That's good. Super good. Um, so I've got a long, this is a plug, not a plug, this is a punt. That whatever I'm about, whatever is going to come out of my mouth in a second is is much more well thought out and and uh, backed up maybe than 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 I have time to explain. So I have a long blog series on sex and gender, transgender identities, where just a lot of it's just going into what do we mean when we say sex, gender, masculine, feminine? Is there such thing as a male brain, female brain? What are we even talking about? Because it, it is shocking how I read people, really smart people. And they just they're, they're talking about concepts, and I'm like, I don't. You've never even really defined this, and I don't. I'm not confident you even know what you're talking about. Mm. Even okay, so sack. I'm gonna have sacks on my podcast. I can't believe you agreed to it in next month or something. Oh, but that's cool. Here's a guy. He's got like you know a PhD, MD, graduated from MIT at like 13 or. I mean, the guy's like literally a genius. I mean, he's like off the chart genius. And he never really distinguished between sex and gender in the book. He used the term gender often to refer to sex and gender and all this stuff, and it's like. I don't know what you're talking about here. So we need to go all the way back. Let's just look at just, just you're an alien that lands on earth. You observe humanity. The human species is what's called a sexually dimorphic species. We reproduced. We, we, re, we can only reproduce when there's a male and a female. Let's just talk about, I'm just going to use the phrase non, non-intersex humans right now. To, to, so that that doesn't, we, can, we need to talk about that as a separate thing, I think. But let's just say non, non-intersex humans are a sexually dimorphic species. They're a male and female. That's not debated. That's like the earth is round. Um, earth revolves around the sun. Humans are sexually dimorphic. There's no debate about that. And the terms used to describe the sexual dimorphism is male and female. Those categories are based on the different structures of reproduction that these two humans embody. Um, which include, you know, the more we study, now we know more about DNA. We know about um, our intrigan systems and what testosterone does in utero. So we understand, like, it's, it's way more involved than that. But non-intersex humans are either male or female based on our re- reproductive uh, organs, systems. Um, now, we know sociologically and scientifically or biologically that most males and most females exhibit cross-cultural general ways in which we behave this is what we would call masculinity and femininity which is based on stereotypes which is based their stereotypes based on the general ways in which males and females act so most males are going to act more aggressive than most females most males are going to like rough and tumble play more than most females this entire and that so that forms a stereotype men are aggressive and you know women are Maybe because of biology, estrogen, less testosterone, maybe because of society. I think there's usually an interaction between biology and society where most women might be, they might cry more than most men. Maybe. Maybe we can say that. 60-40. They might be more emotional or whatever than, than most men. Well, I, no. as if anger and lust aren't emotions, right? <laughs> I, I don't, yeah. So, so we can all agree that, yes, there's these generalities. So what do you do? And then there's these stereotypes that... You see a boy and okay, you're going to kind of, a lot of times unconsciously, the whole gender neutral parenting is almost impossible because parents are just, they're, they're, 
even on a subconscious level, we are coaching our kids to to be the the sex that they are or to live out that kind of stereotype. Even then, there's going to be exceptions to that. There's going to be women who don't match up to the feminine stereotype, men who don't match up to the masculine stereotype. To use those stereotypes to to turn around and therefore define who they actually are as a male or female, I think is... Well, this is where the feminists are all up in arms over the whole trans... I mean, the the trans ideologues and the feminists are just killing each other. I mean, they're just... Mm-hmm. Because the feminists will accuse the trans activists of resurrecting these old patriarchal stereotypes of, yeah. look, you're trying to stuff me in a dress and a high heels, and if I don't like that, all of a sudden now you, you're you saying, oh, maybe you're trans or something. And they're like, no, I'm a woman who doesn't match up to the stereotypes, but my menstruation and my body and my you know my femaleness is an embodied that my body is a significant part of what it means to be a woman um i'm getting off track here so um all that to say and this is something that cat i don't know if it came on the podcast but when she began to realize i can be a female who doesn't fit the stereotype it was so incredibly liberating for her and I think when there is, and there is in certain circles at least, a, a cultural push to if a male or female doesn't resonate with the stereotypes, there is a push to, oh, then you must be something else besides a male or female. And this is something I, I felt like I appreciated with Sax's work is he said one thing we need to do is loosen up on the stereotypes. Yeah. My goodness, you know. Um, he was yeah, that adamant was, about that part. That was a big yeah. takeaway for me. Yeah. I feel like after I read his book, I like in my own head was like, Oh, I'm gender atypical. He talks about gender atypical. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's me. And it was like really nice, yeah. like yeah. felt scene at that moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Gender nonconforming. Here's a, here's a beautiful thing. Gender nonconforming. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the Bible is very positive on gender nonconforming behavior. You have women winning wars. You have men crying all over the place. You have David writing poetry and playing his harp, you know. And yeah. I mean, I think this is a beat. This is what I want people to see is how liberating and how gender nonconforming the Bible is while maintaining the beauty of male and female sex differences. So um, I don't I mean, the thing I'm thinking about, I'm trying to ask a question. What is like just right? What is transgender? I mean, and a lot of people are saying and this is coming out from a lot of teenagers who are detransitioning saying I'm not transgender. I'm just a masculine female. And that's totally when I came to grips and said, that's okay. It was liberating because I kept trying to change my body and do these things. And it just, it just, ah, just didn't scratch the itch, you know, or, or satisfy the itch. But, um, yeah, a lot of people talk about being, being trans or being all these things. And I'm like, well, let's just back up the, let's start with basic science. One thing, every human in this conversation is humans are sexually dimorphic. That's just not debated. Everything else is kind of messy and fluid and, and is intertwined with gender stereotypes. The whole idea of gender stereotypes is so woven into this entire discussion that I think uh, we need to kind of just untangle some of that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. We, were, we were having a discussion earlier today. We won't get into it, but even about celibacy, mm-hmm. how much either stereotypes about celibacy or the way we talk about community and friendships and everything within the context mm-hmm. of the church and maybe how poor of a job we've done with it that even makes the conversation around celibacy, we we're having a discussion about like, what's the purest way to think about it? Mm. You know, cause we're like mm. so impacted by all these other things. And I was telling him, I was reading something that the person who celibate was saying, 
everyone keeps telling me about what I'm giving up, but no one's ever telling me about or talking to me about, hey, what are you gaining? Mm. You know, and the, so there's parts of the conversations that yeah. I think that keep getting left out that are just, it's natural and, and right. all of that stuff. But that's interesting. Well, I want to be sensitive to time. To, or you're yeah. going to say something. I was just going to say, you, your original question had to do with these kind of spiritual categories. And I think that comes from, I know C.S. Lewis in his Paralandra in the, his space trilogy talks about me- masculinity and femininity mm-hmm. as these kind of prior these are the, and from like a, from a Platonic perspective, these are the prior forms, and our male female bodies are kind of a manifestation of those prior forms. Uh, Peter Kreef talks about this. Um, there's several other kind of more. It's more of a kind of like philosophers that I hear um, talking about this, and I there might be something there. And just on a philosophical level, I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense that we don't begin with humanity. Humanity is a manifestation of something deeper, something more creational or spiritual. The only problem is when I hear contemporary thinkers describe masculinity and femininity, they they seem to kind of still, like as spiritual concepts, they seem to echo the stereotypes. Like I literally heard somebody say, or I think it was Jordan Peterson, you know, femininity is chaos and masculinity is order. I'm like, <laughs> wow. They, they, well, that's the yin Yikes. and the yang and, you yeah, know, and they balance yeah. it around. I'm like, okay, I, I know what you're trying to say, but can you never say? Like, never say that again. Have a footnote or something. Right, yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, masculinity is assertiveness and femininity is re- re- being receptive. And they talk about these beautiful com- co- what, uh, concepts. But I'm like, they're just describing these spiritual categories through the lens of the gender stereotypes. Yeah, so I, right, I, I yeah. do, I, I want to, I would love, I want to read Richard Rohr. Cause I, haven't, I haven't heard anybody talk about something that I think could be really beautiful and accurate, these prior spiritual categories. But I don't I just keep seeing people resurrecting these old 20th century yeah. patriarchal stereotypes. I'm like, man, this is really continuing to oppress people. So mm. anyway. I yeah, know. I think that was my, again, I won't draw it out for time, but yeah, I think that was the thing that really caught me about what he was saying was this idea that, again, going back to the like, um, my big hang up is like, sex is such a small part of my married life. Right. Know, when, and this is, I should be right. specific. This is when we're talking about views on marriage, right. not necessarily. Yeah. Because... Straight people, gay people, whatever your orientation is, lots of people out there are having lots of very non-spiritual sex, right? right. Um, but ultimately, <laughs> if we believe that marriage is this, is the bringing together of, of two souls, that idea that Richard Rohr talks a little bit about um, of like the feminine and the masculine transcending physicality yeah. and thus transcending physical gender, genitalia mm. or gender is just... It's just out there. It's open ended. Yeah. <laughs> it's like nobody got an answer. <laughs> right. Something it sounds good. Yeah, when I hear it, it sounds really good. I just I need I need more concrete. Maybe this is my Enneagram three. I don't know. I I just need okay. Like, what's your evidence? What are you basing this in? How are you? Because when anything anything Richard George says, it sounds so great. It yeah. sounds. But then a lot so of times, good. especially because I'm a four, so I'm just like yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't <laughs> need I don't I need evidence. It's just sounds. You just want to wrap it up <laughs> in there. <laughs> yeah. So I I. Yeah, I just, I need to see, okay, where is this coming from and how, because even Lewis, I mean, who doesn't like Lewis? But I mean, Lewis still lived in a very kind of misogynistic, so even when he was kind of talking about femininity and masculinity, where I think a lot of people are getting this from, that makes me a little nervous. I'm like, okay, I, I still want to, I don't know. Mm, yeah. I think there would be. Well, we'll be sensitive for time. I know we've got, we could go so, like, my gosh, I have so many other questions. <laughs> I just, and, I can imagine Imagine me just standing outside of the booth going, two parts, two parts. <laughs> well, well, and the fact that, so I will just say this, which is not about sexuality at all. And so I'm going to personally plug you. Your your book on nonviolence mm. is phenomenal. Oh, thanks. Man. I mean, like, I just loved it so much. It's called Fight. And 
I, I, I can't even like tell you how good it is. Huh. So no I hope you hear that more than just for me. But so I just think it's awesome. I think your perspective on it was so good, and I would love to talk to you about that. But I understand yeah. we, we might have to have you back on. For, so anyway, <laughs> when we, when we maybe we we'll do a non-violent series. series. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Um, just one uh, one last question for you that's more practical and pastoral. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Matt actually wrote this question, but I'm just going to read it. Yeah, sure. it uh, he, he wrote down, if someone contacts you and says, my son or daughter is gay, um, but has not chosen uh, the path of mixed orientation or celibacy, and I believe that their choice to be in same-sex relationship is against God's will, um, what should I do or what should I say to them? Christian parent. Christian son, parent. Do you know how old the kid is? Ooh. Matt. Uh, let's see. In my head, they were um, like college age. Okay. Yeah. Um, Do you want to ask that in two parts? Just well, to, I, I, as a, well, first of all, no matter how old they are, as a general posture, your number one thing is to listen, listen, listen. Number two is when your mouth opens, it's I love you. I'm with you no matter what. No matter what, I love you unconditionally like the Father loves you. And I will be, I will be like... Uh, yeah, I will be loving you till till the day you die. Now, there might be some decisions, some some tougher nitty gritty kind of relational things, but those are all in the overarching category of I'm committed to you. And I th- and this is where some conf- I ask the age because there's some people who might interpret you can only love me if you affirm every single thing I do and mm-hmm. say and whatever. And it's like, well, that's not. If I was an atheist, I'd say that's not that's not a healthy relationship. Sure. <laughs> um, but so I think those are the posture has to be that I think. If they are still, let's just say, in the house under 18, there's more of an active discipleship role. And I think there you do have a right as a parent to have it with gay, straight, bi, whatever, certain kind of household rules, certain like things that you do as a parent. And I'm not going to tell you where to draw that line. But the older they get, if they're out of the house, there's not a whole lot you can do now. And in fact, if you don't have, if the child doesn't know you are 100% committed to them as a person, that you love them. They're not going to even come to you when they might say, hey, I really want to, can you help me think through what the Bible says here? Can you think like, I know what you believe, but, and I don't quite, I'm not there, but I want to give, let's, can we have that conversation? You won't even have that space if they don't trust you and trust the relationship that you've established. So the number one thing across the board is be absolutely committed to them. But if they're out of the house, I'm like, you know pray be committed to them whatever they they might there's a good chance they'll probably go a route that you don't agree with and that that's going to create some relational uh, opportunities to, to navigate those gray areas you know attending the wedding or whatever um but number one thing just absolutely be committed to them. I, and i know i know um we'll, we'll hear tonight from uh and tomorrow from a person who is gay left the faith left the church um parents are conservative christians he's a theologian he's a pastor and they're his dad he I ask him because I'm friends with both the son and the dad. I said, what, what do you think about your dad? How, how do you, you know, he said my, almost with tears in his eyes, say my dad's my best friend. Mm-hmm. They text all the time and they just, they have a, the model relationship between a, a gay person who disagrees with their theology and parents who disagree with, you know, the way he's living or whatever. But like they have a really strong, healthy relationship. It's absolutely beautiful. So I do think it can, can be done. And also like I, somebody's, Eight, 16, 18, 22, 25, like this is the early part of their journey. I want to make sure that I'm there for the middle and late part of yeah. that journey. And you won't have those opportunities if you don't build that really, uh, that strong sense of trust and, and, and yeah, love and relationship. Cool. 
Cool. All right. All right. Um, well, thanks everyone for joining us. We're going to now go straight to Mike checking for <laughs> Preston's event. Preston, thank you so much for being here, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate um, it. Again, if you guys want to hear more from Preston, his podcast is called Theology in the Raw. Um, he has two books, two books on sexuality, right? Yeah, two, uh, and then I edited another one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they are People to be Loved and um, Gray. Living in a Gray World Living for Teens. World. Yeah. And then yeah. I, I edited a two views on sexuality where there's people right on both sides yeah. right very good and by fight oh yeah fight if you want to yeah we're going to come back to nonviolence <laughs> yeah. later um that's a whole nother series but um thanks everyone for joining us if you have questions comments concerns um suggestions for things that we can talk about um or you just want to continue the conversation with john and i you can email us at stay curious at hillcityrva.com and we will get right back to you thanks everyone and we'll see you next time